Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Uh, TAH.org is the leading online resource for document-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. My name is Chris Burkett, Associate Professor of Political Science at, and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Uh, this will be our final Saturday webinar in this year's series, which has been on the theme of presidents and their times. So if you happen to be joining us for our very last webinar, uh, the point of these is to pull together some thoughtful, interesting scholars and just have a conversation about um, 10, this year in particular, 10 American presidents. And we encourage all of you to join us in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, and we will try to get as many of those questions as possible. And in the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request, <clears throat> excuse me, a certificate of participation. As always, uh, we'd like to start our conversations by drawing from speeches, letters, and writings, original documents, and um, our panelists today have recommended some really interesting documents, all of which are available at the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database, which is also available at TAH.org. Uh, the subject of today's webinar is Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, and to help us discuss this, we've invited Stephen Hayward and Gregory Schneider. Steve Hayward is the Thomas and Mabel Guy Professor of American History and Government at Ashland University. He's the author of a two-volume biography of Ronald Reagan, as well as biographies on President Jimmy Carter and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And Steve has uh, taught several courses in our, our MAG program, our master's program, including American Political Economy and American Statesman, among others. Greg Schneider is Professor of History at Emporia State University. He's published five books including most recently, I believe, Greg, Rock Island Requiem, The Collapse of a Mighty Fine Line, which was published by the University of Kansas, uh, University Press of Kansas, Kansas in 2013. Uh, Greg is also a longtime uh, instructor in our master's program, and he's taught a number of courses, including America Between the World Wars and Westward Expansion. So good morning to you both, and thanks for being here. Good morning. Um, I'm going to start with a, a broad question, a big question, since the title of our webinar today is uh, The Great Communicator. I know you're both familiar with this, but, you know, uh, some people like that description of Reagan, some people don't. Um, uh, there, there is this uh, tendency uh, to, to describe Reagan as the great communicator. Some people use that term as, as, a, as almost a kind of pejorative term in the sense that, well, what made Reagan a great president worth discussing is the fact that he could speak well and it comes from his acting background and he was just very persuasive and um but i but i i, I do um i don't subscribe to that view uh but i do think that his ability to communicate well was a big help in uh his uh accomplishments and successes as president so i thought maybe if you would both want to start by commenting on on that description, the great communicator, and uh, whether this is an apt way to uh, to describe Reagan or not. Anybody want to start? And you can you can take this any direction you want, of course. Please. 
I, I have a comment about that, Chris, uh, and it comes from Reagan himself in his farewell address when he refers to the fact that people referred to him as the great communicator. And he humbly says, I'm not sure if the words I said made uh, were the important thing, but what they communicated, the ideas they communicated. Uh, I wasn't a great communicator, he says, but I communicated great things. And they didn't spring full bloom from my brow. They came from the heart of a great nation, from our experience, our wisdom, and our belief in the principles that have guided us for two centuries. They called it the Reagan revolution. Well, I'll accept that. But for me, it always seemed more like a re the great rediscovery, a rediscovery of our values and our common sense. And I think that's reflected in almost every reading that we um, put up for this uh, webinar uh, in terms of what Reagan himself discussed, which was very consistent, starting with his 64 speech for Goldwater, time for choosing and going all the way to his uh, farewell address to the American people in 1989. Uh, he communicated the virtues of the founding principles of the country. Uh, he talked uh, very strongly and clearly about the threat of totalitarianism. I know a lot of his aides didn't want him to give the speech at the Brandenburg Gate, certainly, and there's books about that um, that have come out. But you know, Reagan consistently pushed the idea that just because there's reform in the Soviet Union, the Soviet system itself is still a totalitarian one, is still an evil uh, to be to be discussed in the, in the modern world. And he did this at Moscow State University a year later in 1988. So, I mean, there's this strong consistency in his approach and in his ideals, which he communicates very effectively and very well. So it wasn't... Yeah. Go ahead, Steve, please. Well, I'm just going to say, uh, Greg has stated exactly right in, in drawing our attention to what Reagan himself said about it and thought about it. Uh, I thought, uh, as, as something of a classical political theorist, that Reagan is a great case study in understanding uh, what Aristotle talked about in his treatise on rhetoric, which, you know, is a little more hard to read because it's, um, uh, you know, it's written in a sort of a stiff translated form from the ancient Greek. But one of the things that Aristotle talks about uh, in his rhetoric is... Uh, first of all, it's not just a matter of being, as we'd say today in today's colloquial speech, it's not a matter of being slick and effective and the other things we'd say today, we'd say, say an ad agency, you know, the way mad men would think about this, right? He said it's important what the substance of it is. In fact, this actually runs through Plato's teaching about rhetoric and, and the connection between what you say and how it is said. The other thing that that, uh, that uh, Aristotle uh, emphasizes in the rhetoric that applies perfectly to Reagan is one of the things that makes you an effective communicator is establishing trust with the audience. That's not quite the way Aristotle puts it, of course, but that's what he means. And uh, and that's a matter of character. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's not just looking good. I mean, it's obviously true that it helped that Reagan was good looking, had a great voice, had that acting background. Uh, but it also helped, as Greg said, that he had something to say and I'll add the third point that Reagan made was uh, he said, uh, I always thought that if um, if something's worth saying once, it's worth saying over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, partly that's just basic repetition, right? That's marketing 101. It takes a while to get your message across. Uh, but in Reagan's case, unlike a lot of politicians who sometimes think, well, I gave a speech on topic X and they don't really say it again, or they only say it in cliches and slogans, um, uh, you know, he thought that it was worth making the arguments over and over again. And so I think uh, Greg made the same point I was going to make about the consistency and continuity of Reagan. Um, you know, I'll just make one example and I'll stop. Uh, you know, in, in the time for choosing speech, his first really national speech in 1964, first of all, that the structure of that speech is interesting to go through, and we can do that for a bit if we want. But in the third or fourth paragraph, he tells the story of the Cuban refugee who said, 
how great it is to have a free country to come to, meaning the United States. And if we lose that, then what have we got? And then in his farewell address, which Greg referenced, uh, he tells a story about the uh, sailors who were picking up a, a Vietnamese refugee out of the ocean in you know, the late, sometime in the early 1980s. And it's the same story, essentially. I mean, the, the words are different, but it's the same story, essentially. Because there, the uh, the refugee is you know gets up on deck of the ship and he says, "Hello, American sailor. Hello, freedom man." Right. Uh, so there you see the again the continuity uh, of Reagan uh, hitting the same themes over and over again. And by the way, this may be part of his acting talent, always seeming sincere and fresh every time he said it. Well, I think I remember in the uh, his first inaugural when he uses the story of the World War One veteran Martin Treptow that yeah. there were quite a few people who pointed out that there was no such person or the or he or he hyperbolized about this uh veteran in in some respect to make the point but this was reagan's skill and he yeah. i guess he's the first at state of the union addresses to point out people in the audience and and give them time to to talk about certain things in the in in terms of that what they want to do and accomplish um i think he was the first one to do this and then every president since then has done this but that was a very effective skill. It showed, I think, a humble touch on his part, the fact of relating, as Steve said, to his audience and, and pointing out that you can you can showcase examples of the principles he's talking about in a very uh, kind of populist way and reach reach an audience even further with these specific examples from, from history, even if they're perhaps a little overstretched. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just say as a matter of historical record, the, the, the Martin Treptow thing, what he got in trouble for is that he was a real person, but he wasn't buried in Arlington Cemetery. He okay. was buried in a military cemetery back in Wisconsin. And uh, if you actually look very closely at Reagan's language, he doesn't, he doesn't directly, I mean, it, the setup, as he says, there's these markers across the uh, river that we can see at Arlington Cemetery. There's American heroes there. What he's arguing is they're every bit as much of a hero as Lincoln and Jefferson and Washington and the other people whose big monuments we see. In other words, those grave markers are monuments as well to the American character. Um, really very rhetorically very powerful and effective. And then he says, under one such marker, but he didn't say under a marker, under a gravestone <laughs> there. See, I mean, because okay. I mean, uh, his own people knew that uh, the story was, uh, that this person was not buried in Arlington and the press had a field day with it. but. But I think the, uh, but it's another example of this continuity. Uh, I have done this with students. Um, uh, we didn't add it here, but if you read Reagan's first inaugural address as governor of California and compare it to the first inaugural address as president, it's amazing how much they are the same speech. They have some of the same lines in them, in fact, some, some of the general themes. But he also ends that speech by talking about uh, the, you know, the flag was flying over the Capitol that day. He said it was very small. You may wonder why the flag is so small because it's a battle flag that was brought back by a soldier from Vietnam, and he tells the person's name. So it's essentially the same story. Uh, and it's, again, a, a remarkable example of uh, his imagery and his consistency over time. Yeah, that's, that is remarkable. And, and, you know, so as a great communicator, it's not just how he says things, but you've both raised the substance of what he says. And one of the things that always strikes me is how much he worked the, the principles of the American founding into his into his speeches, which was really a remarkable thing, if I'm not mistaken, right? I mean, how many presidents before Reagan would have invoked the American founders or the Declaration of Independence? Hadn't that, that had sort of gone out of vogue, hadn't it? Yeah, I actually did. I'm talking too much. I should let Greg weigh in here on this. I did a, a word, uh, what a word count or something. You can do word searches these days of presidential speeches. And because everything's been digitized going back to uh, before Hoover, I think. And 
what you found is, is that with the exception of Gerald Ford, who talked about the bicentennial a little bit in 1976, mm -hmm. uh, it, presidents have almost stopped talking about the Constitution and the Declaration. And Reagan really did bring that back. Um, I'm trying to find the one passage in the his first inaugural address. I can't, I can't seem to find it quickly, but it's the place where he says, uh, our government now is, I'll paraphrase here, he said, our government is now growing in ways that seem to be beyond the consent of the governed. Yeah. I mean, that's the phrase right, right from the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And nobody had talked that way uh, before, or I have to say no one's talked that way since, unfortunately. I think the only person, the only president in the 20th century who employed constitutional um, discussions as much as Reagan was Calvin Coolidge, who turned out to be one of his heroes. Um, and I know this because I've done two Coolidge presidential seminars for Ashland uh, in the past. And it, it's it's amazing how many times Coolidge gives speeches directly on principles from the Constitution or the Declaration. But certainly after the New Deal uh, and with the rise of modern liberalism uh, in a way that you don't, I mean, Roosevelt talked about it, but he talked about it as a living document, the way the progressives saw the Constitution, not as, not as the principles of the Constitution as much. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, you both, um, we actually have, we have some two very good questions from uh, Billy. I'm not sure which one to lead with um, because they're both tied to things you've been talking about. I'll start with the second question. Uh, looking at Reagan and his views, would it be accurate to characterize his philosophy as faith, freedom, and founders? And can you give an example to support each in either Reagan programs or speeches, perhaps? Faith, freedom, and founders, is that, is that comprehensive? Uh, yeah, I think so. That's a pretty good short summary. I mean, uh, Reagan, of course, loved to use the the famous phrase from the John Winthrop sermon about America as the city on the hill. Uh, and actually, you can find a couple of speeches from Reagan back in the 1950s when he was on the mashed potato circuit, or whatever he called it, where he <laughs> talked about, uh, I used to like to uh, quote, uh, I forget which pope it was, it was a pope from many decades ago, who said something along the lines of uh, God has placed the uh, the fate of the world into the hands of America. I mean, he really did believe in America as a redeemer nation in certain ways. Um, although we can separately talk about his prudence in not wanting to be, uh, you know, one of the arguments now is, is that Reagan was more cautious about military force than more recent presidents, perhaps. That's a long argument you can have. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, freedom and the founders go together. I mean, he's very much an old Madisonian, <clears throat> Jeffersonian liberal and thinking that the, uh, uh, you know, belief that, uh, well, in fact, I think Reagan even said once that as government expands, freedom contracts. Mm -hmm. End of argument. That's his whole philosophy in one sentence, I think. Yeah. He also, he, I mean, he obviously played a lot on the exceptionalist themes, which is the, you know, same thing Stephen was saying about uh, the city on a hill theme, which Reagan was often criticized for using, if I'm not wrong, um, that, you know, you could look at this two ways that people look up to you uh, as I think Winthrop meant it, uh, and that you're an embodiment of something special and new in the world. Uh, and Reagan, I think, meant that very similarly, that America was an exceptional place and used that reference in that, in that way uh, throughout his speeches when he employed Winthrop's city on a hill metaphor. The other thing he also gotten, he, he was also a bit of a revolutionary and he used to quote Tom Paine a lot, you know, <laughs> we have it in our power to make the world over again. Right. And, uh, in the 80s, when Reagan was, going a little, maybe maybe making a little too nice with Gorbachev and many conservatives were angry at him and referring to him as Gorbachev uh, or, or Reagan-Chov, I should say. Um, 
George Will used to used to say that he's too fond of Tom Paine. So their conservatives were upset with him for being a little too uh, emphatic about this revolutionary radical. But Reagan saw, I think, Paine very clearly as a you know as as an idealist who was an exceptionalist as well. That America stood not only for the principles of the founding, but also for a new order in, in the in the world. And this is something that he embodied clearly in his speaking. I will add a thought to that, which is uh, Reagan was a very unorthodox conservative. Um, and this is a good example of why. I mean, a guy who would quote Tom Paine, who was a radical, right? Uh, right. A, you know, atheist, supposedly. Um, the other way in which you see Reagan was really an unorthodox conservative, it can actually be seen as gravestone at, um, at the Reagan library where he's buried. And he just has one sentence uh, carved on it, and it goes something like this, is I know in my heart that man is good. Well, that's not the Orthodox Christian understanding, right? It's it's not. Uh, it doesn't really capture, uh, uh, you know, the view of the of, say James Madison, who said, and when I think it's Federalist 54, yeah, man is partly good, but there's partly depravity in mankind, and that's why you need limited government, right? Uh, so Reagan was uh, sounded much more like an old-fashioned, well, not much an old-fashioned liberal, but he sounded very different from most other conservatives who emphasize primarily the sinfulness in human beings, right? Or about sinfulness, our defects, uh, right? Um, and, you know, Reagan really sounded much more like a liberal than a conservative with statements like that. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Uh, but you've, all, both of you have mentioned, I think, the, um, the New Deal and um, uh, also mentioned the 1964 speech, the Time for Choosing speech. So yeah. uh, Billy noticed in that speech that he claims to that he used to be a Democrat. So so can we provide some context for that? What's, the, what's Reagan's political background and what were his views on the New Deal? Yeah, that's, uh, I'll go for it. That was a complicated question. Um, yes. I think I think one way to think about it is, uh, is um, Greg mentioned that Re one of Reagan's heroes as president was Coolidge. I think it's worth putting in context that Reagan had three models for presidents that he followed. One was Coolidge, one was Dwight Eisenhower for management style, mm -hmm. and then the third one was Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, and Reagan wrote about this a couple of times in his memoirs and other places about what he liked about Roosevelt was that he did uh, inspire confidence in the American people that no matter how bad things were, the president had things in hand. He wrote about how, you know, he used to listen to those radio addresses from Roosevelt when he was just a young man right out of college, by the way, breaking into radio himself. And he said, you know, his voice was so reassuring. Now, although Reagan in the 40s described himself as a near hemophiliac bleeding heart liberal, that's the <laughs> phrase he used, it's an odd thing that Reagan never wrote anywhere uh, in any specific way about any particular New Deal policies that he liked. Uh, he did say a couple of times that he was grateful that the New Deal uh, helped his father, who, you know, his father was you know, alcoholic, uh, you know, moving from job to job, a downwardly mobile person who struggled in life, right? And you know, the, he, he got work through New Deal programs and Reagan appreciated that. Uh, but he, he never actually talked about any particular New Deal programs he liked. And he's usually, you know, you thought about him was um, uh, was critical of them. Now, there is one other interesting uh, thing to mention. In his diary in 1982, Reagan wrote an entry uh, that's not quite right, really, but I'll, I'll throw it out here and we can work with it a bit. He said, the media and my Democratic opponents say that I'm trying to attack and, roll and repeal the New Deal. He says, that's not true. I voted for Roosevelt four times. It's the great society that I'm after. That's where all the modern troubles began. And 
if you actually go down a policy checklist, that's mostly true about what Reagan was trying to change as president. Uh, with a couple of, you know, he made a couple of runs at Social Security that that ended badly. Uh, however, the time for choosing speech that we've already referenced and, and Reagan's other moves to the right, they happened before the Great Society. So what, was he clairvoyant? Did he see the future? I mean, there's a certain way you can say that maybe he did a bit. Um, but, uh, and I think there is a difference between the Great Society and the New Deal that we can talk about. Uh, that's important. Um, uh, but I think uh, a couple of things changed Reagan's mind, uh, although he was always an anti-communist because he, you know, he appeared on the platform with Harry Truman in 1948. Uh, he, he, I think he came to see, uh, especially under Kennedy, uh, that liberalism was increasingly weak or, or too accommodating to the Soviet Union. That was one of his arguments. The other one was, as he's touring the country for General Electric in the 1950s, he's reading a lot of conservative literature that's persuading him. Uh, things like Hayek's Road to Serfdom, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Um, and he's also talking to people at these GE factories who are all complaining about government regulation and high taxes and things of that kind. So Reagan changes his mind about domestic policy sometime in the 1950s. Yeah, Lem Lemuel Boulware was uh, an important yeah. influence on him at GE, who was, uh, I, I don't know if he was a PR person for, for General Electric in the 50s, but he's the one who had a lot to do with Reagan being their spokesperson during the His 1950s. Name? And there's a very, really good book about uh, Reagan's kind of molding of his conservatism during this period. Um, I think it's Richard Evans, if I'm not mistaken. It's Evans is the last name. Yeah. And it's about Reagan and his GE time at General Electric and Bulwer's influence on him. But I also think that, you know, there was nowhere else to go for him. Let's say he was a conservative before World War II. The conservative movement was very different than what it became after the Second World War, in which he epitomized. It was isolationist. It was incredibly hostile to Roosevelt. They had no policy solutions to the New Deal. Uh, they really had no political uh, person, a, a politician to back. Uh, Robert Taft never had the charisma of certainly a Ronald Reagan. Um, so in that sense, you know, the emergence of Barry Goldwater, which he's speaking of in a time for choosing, excites conservatives in the early 60s. But Goldwater's no Reagan either. I mean, Reagan does a superb job in the time for choosing, uh, showcasing what conservatism could be uh, in terms of its ideals if it had a real skillful uh, seller of the ideas itself. Goldwater was not that in many respects, especially during 64, which he didn't really want to run in the first place. But I think that the, the pre-war conservatism was so antithetical to Reagan's views. I think Midwestern upbringing helps a little bit, but also um, his optimism that it would, it would have been a negative for him if he would have embraced, let's say, America first and taken a, a, a hostile position on the New Deal. And of course, he was in transition. Some people have said that he was the first neoconservative, which I know is not accurate whatsoever. Uh, Reagan exemplified, I think, as Steve said, the learning of people he read, and he read widely in conservative thinking. One of the people that had a huge influence on him, he refers to him, I think, twice in the speeches we have signed, was Whitaker Chambers, um, the 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 former communist who wrote one of the great books of the 20th century, Witness, and especially the first chapter, A Letter to My Children, about the, the, the threat of communism, that influenced Reagan tremendously. And Chambers' kind of moral witness, uh, as well as his witness to the evils of totalitarianism, was very influential on him. Yeah. Uh, Steve, you mentioned earlier that Reagan, of course, was he's an unorthodox conservative, I think was the phrase you were using. So. And Greg, you mentioned the neoconservatives and in the 1950s and 60s, conservatism as a movement was really just 
it wasn't quite coalescing. What was it about Reagan, though, that made it possible for all these different brands of conservative type thinkers, neoconservatives, libertarians, and others, to, uh, to unite around Reagan, uh, especially by the 1980s? I think I have two, uh, there's two approaches you could take. You can say that there was great continuity in the awakening of conservatism in an intellectual movement, which starts in the 40s and 50s with people like uh, Frederick von Hayek and with Richard Weaver and Russell Kirk and other figures who are kind of shaping the ideas. William F. Buckley is the great synthesizer of these ideas in the, in the magazine National Review, which gets first gets published in 1955. And yet it's still an intellectual movement. There's not much political activity. Um, Goldwater emerges as a viable political candidate for the right, uh, and Goldwater talks about his conservative principles, which seem to embody what was called the fusion of these ideas of libertarian or classical liberal thought, traditionalism, and anti-communism, with anti-communism kind of being the glue holding the movement together. But Goldwater is not the best candidate possible for this, and Reagan comes out of the 64 uh, election after a time for choosing, seen as a very effective communicator of conservative principles and ideas, uh, and he's drafted to run for governor of California. Well, then Steve's written widely about this in his first volume of the age of Reagan about the crack up of liberalism, which plays a huge role certainly in the movement of conservatism from just an idea factory uh, to political power. So it's really the late 60s, um, it's the 70s and think tanks and the emergence of the crisis of inflation and tax cuts and other things which play a role in Reagan's emergence. And then the Carter years, which uh, were the kind of uh, endpoint, you know, it'd be interesting to do a counterfactual. What if Reagan were the Republican nominee in 1976? He might have lost, um, certainly, because of the post-Watergate. Uh, it was still too close to Watergate, probably, for a Republican to put together a victory that year. And what would have happened? Well, then Reagan would have been saddled with the problems of inflation uh, in a way that Carter uh, was. And it would have been a timing issue more than anything that would have maybe prevented Reagan from being uh, a president on the cusp of history as he was in 1981. I would say it's those things put together, the, the two arguments, both an idea, intellectual revolution on the right, as well as the failure of liberalism or the perceived failure of liberalism in the 60s and 70s, which helped uh, Reagan kind of put together the coalition of groups, and they were a coalition of groups, which helped him win in 1980. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll gild that a little bit by uh, yes. by saying that, uh, once again, you want to step back and remember the broad picture. The chance and fortune play such a huge role in all these things, mm -hmm. right? Um, and events often have to break a certain way for people to reach the spot. You can say this about Lincoln, about Churchill. Uh, you can say it about uh, you know more recent figures, Obama, whoever you like. Um, uh, Greg mentioned, gosh, what if Reagan had run in 76 and perhaps won? I'll go back to 68. You know, in 1968, Reagan's been a governor for not even two years yet, throws his hat into the nomination contest very late, and comes closer to derailing Richard Nixon's nomination than was really appreciated then or later, because all the attention in 1968 was what happened to the Democrats in Chicago with their mayhem. Um, Reagan said on the plane home to more than one person that he was relieved that he didn't get the nomination because he didn't think he was ready to be president yet, which I think is a shrewd judgment. I go further and say if he'd actually been nominated in 68 and had won, which I think is quite plausible, I think he would have had a miserable presidency. Uh, and I have a lot of, you can't prove these things. These are, you know, legendary <laughs> counterfactuals, right. of course. Uh, 
But one of them is this. I mean, Greg mentioned the crack up of liberalism and how the world was realigning itself. When Reagan became president, a number of his senior people, especially in foreign policy, were people who would have been high up in the administration of Hubert Humphrey if Humphrey had been president. This has kind of been lost in the shuffle, but you know, Jean Kirkpatrick, his UN ambassador, uh, she had been a speechwriter for Humphrey. Uh, and then Reagan's chief arms negotiator was a guy who's been kind of forgotten named Max Campbellman. Campbellman, famous Democratic lawyer from Minnesota, close to Humphrey, was going to be Humphrey's secretary of state if Humphrey had won in 68. These people would never have gone to work for Ronald Reagan in 1969. They were, uh, in fact, Campbellman remained a loyal Democrat even when he worked for Reagan. Um, uh, and you know, a lot of those people realized that they had a more of a home with Reagan by the 1980s. That's a long story. Uh, but part of it is there just wasn't the talent there. And in fact, it's a problem Nixon had. You know, one of the things Nixon said was there aren't enough capable conservative Republicans to staff an administration. Well, by 1980, that had changed a bit. Also, well, he also benefits too from having the Nixon Ford administrations to draw on. I mean, yes, he draws right. a lot of people from the Ford, Ford years. Um, I mean, George H.W. Bush would do the same thing after Reagan. I mean, it's, it's really the, you know, in some respects, the Ford administration, as brief as it was, has had an important impact on American presidential, Republican pol presidential politics since the mid-70s, maybe more than Reagan in terms of personnel. Yeah, that's fascinating. Spe speaking of personnel uh, and the people that Reagan surrounded himself with, um, to, to, to what extent would you say Reagan was his own man as president? Because we, you know, we read in, in, in the things that both of you have written about um, uh, about the disagreements among Reagan's chief advisors and uh, how little they seemed to, to agree on, and the sort of factions within his within his cabinet. So what, to what extent did Reagan take their advice or simply take his bearings from his own judgment about things? Or is that too big? No, it's not too big. I was going to let Greg go first, but oh. he's being quiet. So I'll go I'll first. I'll let you go first, Steve. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, he was very much his own man. I mean, I'll make sort of two points and maybe ramble too long. But uh, one is, is um, I think Greg already mentioned that one great example was the, the tear down this wall speech. Um, uh, at the uh, you know the Berlin Wall in uh, 1987, his entire foreign policy uh, 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 what do you say apparatus was against him saying that in that speech and tried to stop him from saying it. And he finally put his foot down and said, "Well, I'm still the president, right?" And I said, "Yes." He says, "Well, that that line stays in, right?" I mean, it it um, it was a myth at the time that Reagan was a creature of his staff. And there's lots of other episodes like that I can mention on taxes, on various other kinds of policy uh, matters where he put his foot down. Uh, but but there's two things about this at least. One is is that uh, you know one reason they thought Reagan was passive is that he would sit in meetings and not say anything, and no one knew what he was thinking. And it turned out he explained to someone later. One reason I don't speak very often at meetings is because whatever I say I know will be in the newspaper tomorrow. Again, the <laughs> tremendous discipline the guy had, right? Yeah. And he would talk in meetings sometimes, and sometimes it would be to slam some bad idea he didn't like or make a joke or whatever. Um, the other thing is, if you are, think about this for a minute, if it's, uh, you think it's true that someone is a creature of his staff, and yet, as you mentioned, Chris, his staff was at odds with one another. They, you know, they had factions. The, the media called them the pragmatists versus the true believers, right. the hardcore conservatives, something like that. And there's a lot of truth to that, although the media like to, in the media feeds on conflict, so they would fan these flames quite a lot out of proportion. However, 
How is someone a creature of the staff if the staff disagrees? Well, I think it's worth stepping back and understanding that one of the things Reagan did by bringing into his administration, uh, you know, all the people who had worked for uh, his rival in the campaign and then his vice president, George H.W. Bush, is that he understood and, he, and he, he governed the same way in Sacramento as governor, that you cannot govern effectively uh, without all wings of your party represented in an administration. Uh, I mean, the, the old line is, you know, it's better to have everybody in the tent pissing out, right? You know, that's old love line, right? But, uh, but no, he understood that as a practical matter, that you want to have all wings of the party represented, and he knows they're going to fight. He wasn't always very good at managing those fights, uh, but he did like to say that I want to get all points of view. And, you know, he, to, to a better extent than some presidents, he did allow those fights to go on because he thought it would make for a better presidency. In fact, I'll add one last point. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think it's David Hackett Fisher has written about this, that in fact, most of the, if you go back to all of our presidents, the most successful ones have tended to be ones where you had a lot of infighting and factions. That's true beginning with George Washington between, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton, right? Um, certainly true of Lincoln, the whole team of rivals theme. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal brain trust were always at odds with one another. Um, so there's something to be said, I think, as a practical matter for having an administration with a wide variety of views, and that's always going to generate fights. Yeah. I also think on the two central issues that Reagan came into office with, which was ta you know, restoring economic growth um, through tax cuts, which was central to his Reagan revolution, as well as ending detente and, and building up America's military, those were both Reagan's goals and ideas. I mean, he expresses these in his campaign uh, he talks about them in his first inaugural a little bit. And these were both Reagan's central core ideas and both were implemented. Uh, and Reagan was stubborn on the Soviets. You know, he would refuse to negotiate. He refused to meet with Soviet leaders his first term. Um, Beth Fisher has written that there was a change that occurred in Reagan. Others have kind of poo-pooed this and said, no, it's pretty consistent. If you look at Reagan's foreign policy strategy, uh, my old mentor, John Gaddis, said he had a strategic vision uh, and I think that's very clear. He wanted to pressure the Soviets in order to bring about an end to the Cold War. Uh, and this was successful in the end and helped breed Gorbachev. I mean, the, the Soviet Central Committee had to had to nominate a 50-year-old to deal with the 75-year-old Reagan at that point because none of the former leaders of the Soviet Union, and there were three in his first term, could do it. Um, and it's always interesting to see, you know, Gorbachev helped end the Cold War, both played a role, and Reagan played the most crucial role in pressuring the Soviets uh, to realize that they could not keep up uh, with America. The other figure who I think gets short shrift in some respects is George Shultz, who wasn't an ideological conservative in any ways. He was former Secretary of Labor for Nixon, head of Bechtel Corporation, and when Shultz comes in as Secretary of State, I don't think he agrees tremendously about Reagan's foreign policy, uh, positions, but Schultz, ha Schultz has an important impact on Reagan as well uh, in, in talking about Gorbachev, especially as somebody who could be worked with and pressuring the Soviets himself into realizing that they can't keep up uh, their, their um, expansionist kind of policies. The Brandenburg speech is interesting because it occurs after Iran-Contra when his whole foreign policy and chief of staff team changes. I mean, they're all moderate Republicans by that point. You have Howard Baker as his chief of staff, Frank Carlucci at Secretary of Defense. I mean, they're, they're very much a moderate team that's put into place and Reagan defies them plus his own internal staff who he, uh, you know, he believes that this, this has to be said no matter how well is going, things are going with uh, Gorbachev at the time, which is what the staff is really fearful of, that this will disrupt uh, progress in US-Soviet relations. 
Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I want to. I, I really want to turn to foreign policy, especially here in just a just a few minutes. But a couple of other interesting questions have come in. Um, one, uh, what were uh, Greg? You mentioned a couple of Reagan's goals coming in: uh, tax cuts and uh, and uh, doing away with detente. What were Reagan's sort of larger goals as president, and in, in what, what what of those goals was he successful in accomplishing? Well, Jim Baker says in a that he was Bush's campaign manager, and then also then Reagan's first chief of staff. That the, there were three goals to the Reagan presidency in this first term: the economy, the economy, the economy. Um, the the issues of inflation, getting rid of inflation, which proved to be the policy backed by the Federal Reserve, particularly Paul Volcker who Jimmy Carter had appointed, but Reagan endorses the policy of, of driving up interest rates to get rid of inflation, uh, or he doesn't, he doesn't criticize it. He meets with Volcker and backs the policy. But at the same time, it's the tax cut, which is secured in the summer of 1981, um, which you know, was, a, was a crucial uh, bellwether for economic growth during the 1980s, because it cut taxes across the board, uh, lowered the top rate in phases eventually to 28%. Uh, Reagan refused to compromise on the individual tax cuts of that year, but he also raised taxes four times on other things, which is oftentimes met, um, you know, is oftentimes forgotten, including the second uh, go around, which I think TEFRA, the temporary, well, the TEFRA was the first and Erdo was the first and TEFRA was the second, right. temporary emergency yeah. relief. I don't know. I can't remember the <laughs> acronym. But, um, he did make deals. He was willing to make deals. Reagan's comment was that, you know, you can't get everything so settled for some things. And I can't remember the exact wording of that. Steve probably could. But the uh, the issue was for him that you had to be somewhat pragmatic um, on these measures. And I think it's very different than you know, the more ideological conservatism that exists today on certain levels. There's this kind of refusal to be pragmatic on certain measures because and we're going through this in Kansas at the moment with the uh, uh, a very conservative administration, and there's no sense of working uh, to to do things to keep a little bit of what you got and moving away from you know this this kind of idea that you have to have it all. And Reagan was very pragmatic that way, and I think represented a kind of pragmatic conservatism. Uh, he wasn't willing to give in on certain things like the individual tax cuts, but was willing to make deals when it came to the deficit and other things that could improve the situation, and wound up helping tremendously in that regard. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny that uh, you know we have Donald Trump right now talks about being a deal maker, but Reagan was a great deal maker. Yeah. Uh, Tip O'Neill, you know the Democratic speaker who tangled Reagan over and over again, he said once, "I hate negotiating with Ronald Reagan because he always gets 80% of what he wants." And I go through the scripts <laughs> of Reagan's methods, but remember he'd been a labor negotiator in Hollywood up against you know some pretty tough uh, studio heads, and so he was good at it. That's this played out in. It's the arms control negotiations too, uh, which we can talk about in a bit. Uh, Reagan's own way of putting it was, if I can get 70 or 75% of what I want today, or even 50%, I'll take it. And I'll come back for the rest tomorrow, right? And so Greg, <laughs> Greg put his point on it. Um, Reagan's economic literacy was quite high. I mean, he really had a sophisticated grasp of economics, and I'm not sure anybody matches it today, uh, among the sort of political class at least. He understood that not all taxes are created equal. Uh, and so, you know, it's not it's not just low taxes that make an economy grow. It's what kind of taxes he got the central thing, which was cutting marginal income tax rates and keeping rates low on investment, capital investment and such. And everything else, uh, you know, excise taxes, um, this gets off in the weeds in a hurry. You know, the way business depreciation is treated, 
All the rest of that he was quite willing to bargain on, in part because he understood that you do need to have revenue to run a government. Um, but he held fast on the income because uh, everybody, including people in his own party, like Bob Dole, wanted to relent on the income tax cuts. And he said, nope, that's not going to happen. I'll deal with anything else, but that's not happening. That's fascinating. Um, this is a great segue to uh, to his uh, negotiations and foreign policy as well. But before we do that, one quick question from Derek, which I think is a great question, uh, which I'm gonna I'm gonna answer, and then I want both of you to add to add to my answer if you want. Derek wants to know what impact, if any, did the assassination attempt have on Reagan personally and or politically? And I just want to mention in, uh, quickly that Ed Rollins here, uh, Reagan's oh, chief yeah. political advisor, just two weeks ago. And uh, Ed told the story that when Reagan came back to the White House, as soon as he came back from, from the hospital, uh, before he was fully recovered, actually, uh, but he came back, the first things he said was, God didn't put me on this earth to watch three-fourths of humanity be destroyed by nuclear annihilation. Uh, and, and so Ed, Ed Rollins' suggestion was that the assassination attempt woke him up. I wouldn't say woke him up, but it, but it made that point even clearer in Reagan's uh, mind is something that had to really be worked towards. So, so you know, I always thought that was very revealing about Reg what Reagan was really up to in dealing with the Soviet Union and trying to, first of all, do away with detente, as Greg said, but but ultimately bring bring the Cold War closer to an end. So I'll let either of you pick up with that or take it any direction you want. If you have anything to add to that. I think if you read Reagan's um, radio addresses, and there's a good collection of these um, published about a decade ago or more um, that he gave in the 1970s uh, after he left the governorship, he, he gave syndicated radio addresses. They were very short. He wrote them, usually in longhand, usually in a hotel if he was on the road uh, and delivered them very, very well. Uh, but the radio addresses are, are amazing for their delineation of the, you know, the consistency, again, in Reagan's view about communism and about totalitarianism and the great evils involved in it. Um, and it, it's, it's oppression of people who are victims of communism around the world. And this is something Reagan brought into his presidency, no doubt. Um, and he says it at Westminster. He says it again in the evil empire speech uh, to the National Evangelical Conference. Um, you know, he's, he believes sincerely that the Soviet Union and the communist world uh, are evils that have to be eradicated. And he seems to know something about this that the, his own CIA doesn't, because the national intelligence estimates consistently during the 1980s are showing the Soviet Union is, you know, economy is doing well. Uh, it can still spend certain parts of its GNP on the military. It's a formidable threat, which indeed it was militarily anyways, as we know. But the CIA is estimating that there's no reason to think that the Soviet Union, as late as 1988, I think, is, is saying this, there's no reason to think that the Soviet Union will break up uh, or that the Soviet empire will end. Reagan consistently had the opposite view. And I think it's just from his understanding of the philosophical issues of communism, his own kind of sense of the, uh, the anti-communist view of what totalitarian governments in the Soviet bloc were all about, uh, and his consistent faith in kind of human freedom and individualism emerging uh, as the as the great kind of bellwether of history. Yeah, it, uh, I think this is another great example of how unorthodox Reagan was. Uh, 
First of all, he really did believe in abolishing nuclear weapons, not just scaling them back, not controlling them, but actually abolishing them completely, which everybody thought was this ridiculous and maybe even irresponsible fantasy. His own military advisors certainly thought that. Uh, and then second, and Greg raised this point, is that if you look at other conservatives from that era, you know, Henry Kissinger in particular, um, Richard Nixon was still very much around in the middle of things, but also the neoconservatives like Norman Podhoretz, Irving Kristol, some of the other leading thinkers, they all thought the Soviet Union was here to stay, that we would be dealing with them for a hundred years, that it was a durable form of rule, even though we hated it and thought them evil and all the rest of that. And, and Reagan really did think that there's, there's and he put it this way, there's something unnatural about it. There's something so dysfunctional about it that this can't possibly last. Uh, and uh, uh, Greg is right that the CIA and the, the official establishment kept saying, we see nothing here that's a problem. Uh, but there were a couple of people close to Reagan. Uh, Herb Meyer was one who was, it was actually at the CIA, was one of these renegade guys. Um, mm -hmm. Henry Rowan, one of the economists on the National Security, Security Council. These were people that Reagan was asking them to look for signs of the Soviet Union under stress. That was part of his uh, foreign policy, by the way. One part of it was, let's try and put the Soviet Union under a lot of stress. <laughs> Uh, and so he's very aggressive about it, while at the same time, to get back to the assassination question, uh, you know, I have no idea. This is one of those things where Reagan was such a private and remote person that you can't really know. But I've often wondered if he had, and we, and we know that he was a religious person in certain ways that are hard to figure out. But I've often wondered if he had some kind of serious religious experience through that, right? I mean, almost a mystical one. I, I tend not to wander off into these speculations, but here I wonder about it. One of the things he does while he's still in the hospital is ask if Cardinal Cook from New York can come visit him. He, you know, he was the big cardinal for the Catholic Church. Reagan's not a Roman Catholic, but for some reason he wanted to meet a clergyman, and I think he talked to Mike Deaver, and, and Cardinal Cook comes and sees him. Uh, and the other thing, one of the other things he does during that period, I think it may be while he was in the hospital, but probably after he got back to the White House in a couple of weeks, he writes a long handwritten letter to Leonid Brezhnev, who was the general secretary of the Soviet Union at the time. You know, he, he was a, about a year away from dying of decrepitude like so many Soviet leaders at that time. And this is very long handwritten letter that's very sentimental, where Reagan says, but Reagan had said things like this before privately and even in public. Essentially, it says, can't we just sit down like normal human beings and reach some kind of settlement? This is silly for us to be uh, uh, you know, threatening the destruction of the world. Maybe we're letting our ideologies get in the way. I mean, to read this letter, you might have thought this was written by some soft-headed Hollywood liberal or something, right? Which Reagan never was one of those. Um, and the interesting was is that once again, uh, Secretary of State Haig at that time, who Reagan didn't get along with, that's a long story, uh, was adamantly opposed to him sending that letter. And by the way, I have to think that the Soviets, when they got the letter, Reagan finally sent it. Said, no, I'm going to send it. I want to send it. You want to send them a letter from you, you go ahead. And, and the State Department wrote this very tough State Department letter. The Soviet Union had to have found Reagan's letter and the other letter very disorienting. And in fact, what they got back from Brezhnev was a typewritten letter, obviously a product of the foreign ministry that didn't, didn't respond to Reagan's olive branch, which was really the first time that Reagan said, why don't we sit down and talk like human beings instead of this silly stuff we're doing now? Yeah, that's also, that's I think the, the issue coming out of the assassination of his wife's attempt to control his schedule to protect him, you know, Reagan would stop really appearing and, you know, he wouldn't go to, let's say, public lines anymore, for instance. And the Secret Service was also very protective of him. And his age comes into play. I mean, yeah. uh, 
Edmund Morrison, his bi terrible biography, Dutch, many years ago, claims that Reagan had blood transfusions that turned him into kind of a zombie-like figure during the, the rest of his administration. And after the assassination, he was a changed person because of these blood transfusions or blood that he got, which is a very strange uh, argument among other strange arguments in the book. But the, but the point is that there, there was a kind of move away from a more active, Reagan was very active his first year as president. And I'm not saying he wasn't active again, but he would. There was a much more control atmosphere around him. I think after the assassination attempt in '81, um, with a lot of that coming from Nancy, who who didn't want him in, you know, public situations which would put him into danger. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, one last observation is Nancy lost 10 pounds in the two or three weeks after the assassination attempt, and she only weighed 90 pounds to begin with, or whatever, right? She said that's a lot of weight for her to lose, and that's just out of her own anxiety. Uh, conversely, you know, Reagan, who really only worked two, three hours a day for, I think, till June, I mean, that he really was bad, much more badly injured than the public knew at the time. Uh, but he was working out in the White House gym, and he put on uh, two inches on his chest from all the weightlifting he was doing, which showed you how he was going to come back from it. Fascinating. <laughs> um, how do we... Um... How did he get um, Gorbachev once he finally finally hit Gorbachev is 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 now um, you know the the contact in, in in the Soviet Union. How did Reagan get Gorbachev to come to the table, or how did he how did he seem to understand what it would take to get Gorbachev to the table so well? How how was Reagan able to do that, or what was it about Gorbachev, or what was it about Reagan? How did that re how did that relationship develop between them? Well, I'll go first on this, um, and then Greg can fill in or correct or whatever. Um, first of all, Reagan had said, I'd already given hints of this, Reagan had said, I always thought if I could sit down with a reasonable Soviet leader who understood the dysfunctions of their system and the madness of the arms race, that we could make a breakthrough. But he added, I never thought I would meet such a Soviet leader. Um, and when Gorbachev became general secretary, he wrote in his diary that I'm told by Margaret Thatcher and other people who've met this guy that he's a different kind of Soviet leader. And then he said, I'm too cynical to believe that. So Reagan was skeptical at first. Uh, but I think the thing about Gorbachev that is remarkable is that he was a genuine liberal reformer. He was a confused one, I think. He thought the problems of socialism required more socialism. And that was one of the failures of his own reform agenda. But he didn't understand, and they actually he put it this way to his wife the night he was picked, that things can't go on as they are. We have to make some changes. By the way, he says that as they're going for a walk outside because he's fearful his own apartment is bugged by the KGB. <laughs> I mean, he, he understood what was wrong with his own country. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, that, and he understood that, that the arms race was madness. Uh, I will add this point, that one of the criticisms of Reagan, including by some of his own people, but especially his critics, is that your hardline stance is going to, they sort of thought the Soviet government must be just like the American government with hawks and doves. And you're just going to make it so that, uh, you know, we get some hardliner who will make things worse, right? And Gorbachev tended to be the opposite. And some of Reagan's own people like Bill Clark said, no, we think the opposite. We think the pressure we're putting on them in all kinds of ways, arms buildup, economic pressure, or rhetorical arguments, is going to make it more likely we're going to get a reformer. And it was a close run thing. I, I forget the, the rival for Gorbachev in 85 was an old fashioned, you know, hardcore Soviet guy who never would have um, budged an inch. Was it Gregory uh, Romanov? I, that's right. It was Romanov. I, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And it was a close vote. Um, and, I, I, you know, a little point about Gorbachev. One of the persons who put Gorbachev over the top, I think, was Kosygin, who'd been around forever. Mm -hmm. 
And then one of the first things Gorbachev does after two, three months was put Kosygin out to pasture. <laughs> so, you know, it shows that Gorbachev had a tough Machiavellian streak to him. Anyway, uh, uh, so, but the point is, is that Reagan had wanted to get together, but he wanted to get together in a serious way. He actually wanted to have a, a, a summit where they really argued. There's several parts of this. Uh, a lot of summits in the past, in fact, all the summits in the past have been kind of pre-cooked. They only talked about an arms agreement. And Reagan said, no, no, I don't want a pre-cooked summit. I don't want to talk only about arms control. I want to talk about everything. And the Soviets agreed to that after having walked out of arms talks uh, three years, two years before. Uh, and so for the first time you had real arguments. Uh, I think the phrase that Don Regan, as chief of staff used is that at times Reagan and Gorbachev argued like two taxi drivers in New York after a fender bender. <laughs> uh, but uh, Reagan had a sense of when to be tough and when to relent and be a nicer guy. It was just one of his intuitions. And they both came out of that meeting liking each other. I mean, Gorbachev says, I think Reagan's a dinosaur. I think he's a slave to the capitalist class of America, you know, orthodox Marxist understanding of things. But both of them said and told people that I like the guy. I think we can get somewhere. Uh, and so the personal relationship, uh, the personal factor turned out to be uh, maybe the most important thing. That's fascinating. So it comes out of after a period of some um, danger up, up until at least early 1984. You know, you had the... Yeah. Uh, Reagan's stubbornness on, on putting the Pershing missiles into Western Europe, um, which he, you know, worked with the NATO allies to do over the heads of the people who were protesting this in large numbers. In fact, there are large numbers of protests here at home too over the uh, over nuclear weapons, including his own daughter who was protesting at Central Park, uh, Nancy Davis. You also had. Um, the Abel Archer exercise, which convinced the Soviets, the Soviets were convinced that this was a NATO invasion of Eastern Europe, um, which occurred in 1983, uh, the shoot down of the uh, KAL uh, 007, the Korean airliner plane, which Reagan called an evil act uh, uh, in addressing this, the, which was a deliberate act on the part of the Soviets. And then you also had, you know, the the day after movie, which, you know, Reagan wrote in his diary was, you know, depressed him uh, because of, this, of all places, an attack on Lawrence, Kansas. I guess they wanted to destroy the basketball team uh, <laughs> as much as anything. So, um, you know, all of these things were contributing to a really hostile atmosphere and Reagan was blamed for this. Um, some have written, I'm not sure how uh, that this is, again, Nancy wanting her husband to be viewed as a peacemaker rather than a warmonger. Uh, Beth Fisher, a historian in Canada, has argued that this represented a legitimate turn away from the kind of harsh rhetoric which Reagan uh, had relied on up until 1984. But his re-election, the economy's turnaround, I mean, all of these things he had been building up were interlinked. I mean, he wanted a strong economy so he could have a strong military and combat the Soviets. Uh, but the pressure was, I think, mounting that something had to be done about this. And Gorbachev emerges at the right moment, as Steve said. Uh, at least willing to talk about these issues uh, with Reagan. And when he gets the thumbs up from Thatcher, he also got, I think, a positive review of Gorbachev from George Schultz, if I'm not mistaken, that this helps turn the tide a little bit for him. But I think he's consistent. I don't, I don't buy the fact that there was a second term you know, change. Reagan remained remarkably consistent in what he wanted to achieve vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets uh, throughout his eight years as president. But Greg, is it fair to say that he softened the rhetoric a little bit or after 80? Well, the rhetoric certainly softened, no okay. doubt, um, yeah. uh, in the second term. I mean, but he also he also had pushed, I forgot, SDI, a Strategic Defense Initiative, which the Soviets were deeply concerned about because they could not keep up uh, with the computer technology and the things necessary to develop even a, a, a 
research program on something like this and it was destabilizing to mutual assured destruction. The Soviets were really worried about uh, SDI um, in, in the mid 80s, as, as several Soviet generals had said after the end of the Cold War, that this was one of the changing points. Another thing that doesn't get enough play, and it should, is inflation was tamed. And the Soviets had expanded through the 70s. They'd used detente as a cover to expand in the greatest uh, period of expansion in Soviet history, as well as support for terrorist organizations throughout the world, hindering the West because inflation was high. And so they traded their oil for Western currency and were able to parlay this into aid to uh, groups around the world, their, their client states, as well as military expansion. And so in the, with the taming of inflation and the collapse of oil prices in the early 80s, by I think 1982, that changed. The Soviet economy was broke. Uh, it had huge problems It had overexpanded. They couldn't afford this anymore. I think Schultz made Gorbachev aware of this in relation to Afghanistan in a visit to Moscow, I think in 1986, uh, putting the bug in his ear that it might be time to decommit from there. And if I don't think Gorbachev needed Schultz to tell him this, uh, they couldn't afford it anymore. They had, um, I think the historian Paul Kennedy referred to this as imperial overstretch on the part of the Soviets. And Reagan took advantage of this. It's fascinating. So you mentioned you mentioned strategic defense initiative, Greg. So just if you don't mind, either of you help us think about this, because as we know, when Reagan first raised this idea, uh, by the way, I, thought, I toyed with putting in his uh, um, uh, message, his tele televised address where he lays out his rationale for strategic defense initiative. But we know it was derided. It was labeled Star Wars. Uh, was this a good was this a good move on Reagan's part? In, two, in, in, in the sense either politically or strategically having to do with the Cold War. Was this a good Well, I move? think it was a, I think it was a genius move uh, politically, yeah. strategically, and, and all the way around. By the way, it's another example of Reagan not being a creature of his staff. Everybody was opposed to this idea. Uh, George <laughs> Shultz, the Secretary of State, was trying to talk him out of it until 15 minutes before he gave the speech. And, you know, Cap Weinberger, his defense secretary, would later say, it is a long story about these guys, he would later say, oh, it was a great thing, but at the time he was hugely unenthusiastic. His budget director, David Stockman, was horrified because he thought it's just going to cost too much. He only had two people who were who were backing him. Uh, his national security advisor at the time, Bill Clark, was really one of his closest personal friends, and then his scientific advisor, George Keyword. But there's a case where Reagan said, I want to say this, and if you do go back and read, uh, there's a long backstory of this, this huge problem of basing the MX missile I won't get into all that. It gets way off into the weeds. Uh, but it, what Reagan was saying was these very broad themes is what if we, uh, you know, what if we did something that would make nuclear weapons obsolete? How about this? And, you know, the military had been wanting to do research on this for a while, but they thought it would be point defense for Air Force bases and missile silos, right? Which, and there's some reason why you would do that. Um, mm -hmm. And Reagan understood, wait a minute, I can't tell the American people I'm going to protect missiles and airplanes, but not them. That's why he put in such capacious ah. terms that I want to build a shield to protect the whole country, which is very much more complicated and difficult. That's, uh, that's great. Yeah. And, and I uh, noticed the, the other thing is, is that, uh, uh, well, again, he explained this to people later. He didn't put it that way directly in his speech. Again, it's his intuition that you, 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 you say indirectly what you actually, not indirectly, but, you know, you imply what you mean, right? Uh, and and uh, uh, he, he did also, this gets lost in the shuffle. He did say, this is a long-term challenge for science, kind of like going to the moon. He didn't use the moon analogy, but it, but he said, uh, this isn't a speech. He said, it'll probably take 20 years or more for something like this to be developed. In other words, sometime way after he'd left office. 
Mm-hmm. And in fact, we didn't really get some systems deployed until about 20 years after he gave the speech, and we've never committed to it. We don't need to, right? The, the Soviet, you know, Russia got rid of most of their long-range missiles, so it's not as the, the times have changed. But uh, but then the other thing was, is, as Greg mentioned, it terrified the Soviet Union. Uh, and this came out years later that you know one of our early tests in I think 1984, so fairly early in the whole timeline, turned out we faked a test. You know, we had that we reported this great success in shooting down a ballistic missile over the Pacific Ocean. It turned out we'd faked the whole thing just to scare the hell out of the Soviet Union, and it worked. It's good to see we could be like North Korea. Yeah, yes, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I think that's something else. It's it's also consistent with what Steve raised earlier, and that was Reagan's nuclear abolitionism. I mean, he really was horrified by mutually assured destruction and whether this dates to this event or not, he took a tour of the NORAD site in the late 70s um, and was told that, you know, what a nuclear weapon could do to this site, and it might reflect the failure of the U.S. to respond um, to a nuclear attack. And he and he thought about this and thought consistently about how moral is it to allow your civilization and your people to be killed by nuclear weapons? Wouldn't it be better to get rid of them? Right. And at the Reykjavik summit, which shows both Reagan's strong belief in at least keeping SDI research going when Gorbachev proposes to get rid of all nuclear weapons, uh, but then to cut research on SDI, which shows you how much the Soviets were concerned about this, you know, Reagan says he can't do it. And, and, you know, the headline in Time Magazine, I think, was sunk by Star Wars afterwards, after that uh, summit. Reagan says at the end, you know, damn it, we were that close to getting rid of nuclear weapons uh, as he goes off in a car after the Reykjavik summit. So Reagan believed firmly, without even checking with his allies about what they might think of this, Thatcher was horrified, as were others, that, you know, we we should be able to get rid of nuclear weapons and end this idea of mutually assured destruction. And SDI was the, the way to do this, he felt. Yeah, the great line from that televised address, of course, you mentioned it, paraphrased it, Greg. What if we could save hundreds of millions of lives instead of having to simply avenge them? Right. That's a, that's a fantastic line. And when you, I mean, if you take Reagan seriously, you take him at heart when he says things like that. I, I've never understood these, his characterizations of Reagan as, as a dangerous sort of warmonger and who, you know, who was willing to push things to the edge. Uh, that never struck me as his goal in these things. But, but you, you mentioned, um, oh, just at the end there, Greg, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher, and uh, I know at times Reagan kind of pissed them off. Some of our, <laughs> some of our allies weren't always happy with Reagan. Uh, what was his relationship like with with Margaret Thatcher? And and maybe uh, talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the significance of the Westminster Westminster speech, which I, I think is is really remarkable as a statement for what Reagan Reagan believes in. Steve could probably answer the Thatcher question more directly than I can, but I think one of Reagan's great successes was revitalizing the Western alliance, um, and, and that was one of his goals too um, in the late in the in the 1980s. Uh, not only a strong anti-communist Western alliance and NATO, but also having allies like Thatcher, Helmut, uh, Helmut Kohl of, of Germany and Helmut Schmidt before him, um, the Social Democratic member, Francois Mitterrand, a socialist who was firmly anti-Soviet. I mean, one of Reagan's great strengths was to help revitalize the West uh, against the Soviets after about a decade of the feeling that the West was in decline and that the Soviets could not be stopped and that communism was on the march. Uh, in the mid 70s, that was all the talk, certainly after the fall of communism in Vietnam, uh, 
or the fall of Vietnam to the communists in Southeast Asia. Uh, Freedom House, which was this New York organization, used to publish statistics about how many countries lived in totalitarian systems. And those, those were on the rise in the 1970s. But Reagan had this faith, I think as FDR did, and this gets back to uh, where his political mentor was in many respects, that you know democracy would win hands down. You know, Roosevelt faced the same problems in the 30s with the rise of dictatorship and believed firmly that democracy would win uh, in the end and, and held to that fact throughout the war. And Reagan held very similarly to that and strengthened the Western allies. He also had the good fortune of having a Polish pope, which was a brilliant choice of the College of Cardinals uh, in Calvotilia to be Pope John Paul II, who did uh, certainly wasn't going to align himself with the United States in all foreign policy issues, but was firmly anti-Soviet. Yeah, so the, the Thatcher relationship is an interesting one. You know, they were obviously ideological soulmates. Uh, you know, they read the same books, they thought the same way, they both loved Milton Friedman, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they also understood that in very large ways, their two projects were identical. Uh, you know, Thatcher was trying to turn around a a failing British economy, uh, and and you know, so in other words, their their two projects in broad terms were the same, and I think paradoxically that allowed them to have some very sharp clashes that did not disrupt their friendship and the relationship between the two countries. There were really three, where uh, or two and a half, you might say, where Thatcher was really furious with Reagan. Uh, in reverse order, Greg mentioned one is Thatcher hopped about the first plane she could get to Washington after the Reykjavik summit to say, Reagan, are you out of your mind talking about getting rid of <laughs> nuclear weapons? You know, that's what's kept the peace for 40 years. And, you know, by the way, if you're going to do something like that, we'd like to be um, talked to first, right? Because Reagan went and did this without any consultation with her, without uh, the French and Germans. And they all thought they might be left uh, sort of off in the lurch, there'd be a decoupling. Well, that's one thing. Um, the second one was uh, when we invaded Grenada in 1983. That was, you know, a Commonwealth nation. And once again, Reagan, and of course, this is operational secrecy, but they didn't tell Thatcher until after the operation was already underway, and it, she was not pleased. But it's yeah. an example of sort of Reagan, and this great story about this is she's on the phone with Reagan, and she's really giving him the business. Let's tell her how much she's not happy with this. And Reagan pulls the phone away from his ear, puts his hand over the, uh, you know, the, uh, the mouthpiece, because of course Schultz and everybody's in the room with him, and he just says, "Isn't she great?" <laughs> you know, the typical Reagan, right? Um, yeah, and then the one I think was really the most serious, and where 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 Thatcher was publicly the most critical of Reagan was in 1982, when Reagan, for a time, imposed sanctions on the Soviet natural gas pipeline to Europe, mm -hmm. and you know the British had a lot of business interests in uh, uh, in that pipeline. A lot of British companies were working on it. Uh, and, and, you know, what Reagan did was the sanctions, the sanctions only lasted about six months. It, it didn't really work very well. Um, uh, but the, the sanctions said, you know, American companies can't do any, uh, uh, any work with these companies and they can't do business with any foreign country that is doing business with the Soviet Union on the pipeline. And that affected a lot of British companies with hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts. And Thatcher said publicly, this is not how allies should treat each other. I mean, she was very blunt about it. Um, but uh, I think if they hadn't had that ideological bond, I think the breach would have been more difficult for them. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Great stories. We <laughs> we have a, we have about four we have about four minutes left, so I want to maybe have two final questions that bring us that bring Reagan anyway into where we are today into modern modern perspective. And one one question has to do with foreign policy. The other has to do with um, sort of domestic politics. So. Uh, this is actually a question I, uh, maybe Pete 
submitted it. Um, how would Reagan, how do you think, this is a counterfactual, but how do you think Reagan would deal with a, a, a Putin today? Well, yeah, you're right. It is speculation. I have two thoughts. One is, is that he would not have done what Obama did, which was cancel deployment of uh, some anti-missile systems in Eastern Europe. He would, uh, I think he'd put those back in. He might send a few American troops to Poland and other places that would like to have them. Uh, and then, and then secondly, what's just happened in the last few weeks, I think Reagan would probably send a message because he did this with Libya, right? I think he'd send a message next time one of your planes thinks it's going to have fun buzzing one of our warships, it's not going to get home. Uh, you know, Reagan did do that in the case of Libya. You know, Libya in 1981, actually in the late 70s, had been harassing American ships. And Reagan said, all right, here are the new rules of engagement. You can shoot at them. And they asked him, how, how long can we shoot at them? And Reagan said, you can shoot at them all the way back to their hangars in Libya if you want. And, you know, that, what happened is, is uh, you know, uh, the Navy shot down two Libyan fighters uh, in, in August of 1981. Everyone was shocked. And Reagan says, I think this sends a message. There's a new sheriff in town, and Libya never bothered our ships again in the Mediterranean. That's right. right? That's right. So I mean, now, 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 Libya is Libya, and you know, it's not a serious threat, but uh, in in military terms, and Russia's not. That's a serious country. So I'm not sure he would do it that way, but certainly it's plausible to imagine he might do something like that. It's a good thing Reagan had to deal with the the Cold War relationship, which was a lot more stable. Yeah, uh, a lot more an engagement between two countries versus the situation that's, I think, perplexed every president since the Cold War. And that's how do you deal with the multi uh, polar multi, you know, the, the rise of terror, which was starting in the Reagan years, of course, especially the, the rise of Islamic terrorism with Hezbollah and with Iran backed terrorist groups in the Middle East. But that's a much more complex problem to deal with. And, you know, Reagan doesn't have good success dealing with the hostages and the hostage taking in the Middle East either. I mean, this is something he feels, you know, he's critical of Carter for trying to make a, wanting to make a deal with the Iranians, but winds up making deals or trying to make deals to free hostages in the Middle East. And how could you not? These are Americans being held hostage. I mean, it's a, it doesn't fit the bill of the kind of totalitarian versus democratic systems that define the Cold War. And I think every president since then has had a host of problems dealing with these issues. That's a great point. Yeah, the, the circumstances are so different in, in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Okay, very good. One last question, and I hesitate to do this with just a few minutes left, but you both mentioned Trump at the beginning of this. So uh, Donald Trump claimed at one point in the campaign to be a Reagan Republican. True or false? Is he, is he a Republican? Can he rightfully claim to be a Reagan Republican or not? And you have to answer. You can't say I'm not going to. No, I think it's false. I'm just I mean, kidding. He, he's uh, okay. right. No, he's. Um, uh, I mean, he's neither Reaganite, both in his dis. Remember, Reagan was a very disciplined guy. I mean, I've made that point in a couple of different ways and consistent. And uh, it, Trump is uh, not the most consistent guy as we've seen on the issues, right? Um, and he's not very disciplined in how he communicates, right? Um, uh, you know, Reagan uh, was obviously controversial and took strong stands. Uh, but two differences is that Reagan was always criticizing ideas. And, and I mean, he'd say things about the Democratic Party and whatnot and the liberals. He'd make jokes about liberals. But he would never make personal comments about the people he'd argue with. Or if they were, they would be sort of humorous and lighthearted. I remember, uh, you know, one of my favorites was uh, the time when someone said, oh, someone told me about this game called Pac-Man, which is something that goes around and gobbles money. I thought it was Tip O'Neill, right? So, <laughs> okay, but you know, so that's a little bit funny. Uh, but yeah, it never, right. it was never as sort of nasty as Trump uh, seems to revel in being, right? Um, yeah. 
And then, uh, you know, we've already talked about the consistency and seriousness and depth and, and careful nature of Reagan's rhetoric. And you see none of that. Uh, and you know, Reagan was seriously interested in ideas and had a lot of depth to him, um, which you didn't always see. And boy, it's hard to make that out with Trump. I think the yeah. difficulty for the Republicans is, you know, if Democrats live for decades in the shadow of FDR, then um, Republicans today live in the shadow of Reagan. I mean, Reagan was the last yeah. great president on the Republican side who who defined the era, um, who was successful in getting us out of the Cold War uh, and restoring the economy. Certainly, uh, nothing's perfect, of course. There's always going to be problems with all of those sorts of things. But, you know, without leaving us um, the way George W. Bush did with, a, you know, the unsettled economic situation with the, the unpopularity of the Iraq war, let's say. Um, in that sense, it's very difficult for Republicans to fill his shoes. Maybe they should stop trying. Yeah. Uh, I think that the guy who came closest to saying he was the Reagan conservative in the campaign was not Trump, obviously, but was um, uh, Ted Cruz. <laughs> and I didn't see that at all. Um, and, and Ted Cruz is no pragmatic conservative. So I think the problem for the Republicans is it's time to build a new model based on the new realities they face and not trying to fit the shoes of Reagan anymore. The same problem, it's the same problem that Democrats face for decades about FDR. Well, that, those are both great, uh, insightful ways to think about that. So I, uh, I appreciate both of those, uh, those comments on that on that odd question, I admit. But but thanks thanks to both of you for being here today. I've I've learned a great deal as always, and uh, I'm sure our panel or our our, our uh, participants have learned a great deal as well. So I I thank you very very much for sharing your thoughts and your your knowledge with us about Reagan. It's great to talk with you both. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. So, so, so thanks to you both and thanks to our participants for submitting some great questions. We got to a lot of them today. Uh, just a quick reminder that you will receive a link with a, or an email with a link for your certificate of participation. And if you've enjoyed our conversation today, check out a, a, a MAG course, Master of Arts in American History and Government course. This is how we do things in our courses. We like to start with original documents and have conversations. You can find out more about those courses, again, at TAH.org. We will post um, next year's webinar theme and the readings and dates uh, very soon. So until then, I wish you all the best. Thanks again and take care. Thank you. For